0: Welcome to All The Things, a podcast for moms seeking an inspired life. Hi, I'm your host, Lisa Chin. I'm a writer and a coach, and my most passionate truth is that the world needs the real you. That's why I created this podcast, to discover all the things that make us who we are, because the better we understand ourselves, the more good we can do in the world. So let's do that together. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode with my guest, Jonathan Roberts. I am super excited to be sharing this space with him. Jonathan is the owner and director of the South Shore Piano School in Quincy, Massachusetts, really not far from where I am. A passionate educator, Jonathan's work revolves around not only teaching music, but also incorporating creativity, possibility, and skill building into students' everyday lives. Jonathan maintains an active blog on the South Shore Piano School website and is also the host of South Shore Piano, a podcast about how music education changes lives. And I have been lucky enough to be one of the guests on that podcast. Jonathan, welcome today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, before we get started, I want to first acknowledge that I am speaking and podcasting from the traditional and unceded territories of the Nipmuc and Massachusetts tribes, and today's conversation will touch so much on creativity and art and really I think the culture of music. And it would really not be a complete conversation without recognizing that there is so much, especially because we kind of share um, a geographic location right. um, without acknowledging that the what this conversation really would not be able to take place without the stewards of this land. That came before us so, absolutely Jonathan um now oh where do we start let's introduce <laughs> the audience to kind of um who we are because I think <laughs> that this is one of like one of the things I love about our modern day relationships can you share a little bit about our relationship
1: oh absolutely so we both live in the same area we never Met each other until we both ended up in the same marketing seminar, and we clicked pretty much immediately. You know, helping one another with our projects—you with your projects, uh, you with mine. You've had such a substantial impact on my my work as a, an entrepreneur, as a creative, as a outside the box thinker. And uh, we've just stayed connected ever since. Just you know, meeting periodically, you know, exchanging ideas, and it's been a, a really awesome synergy. So uh, thank you for that, Lisa.
0: Oh well, I mean. I remember reading one of your first posts and I was like, Oh, it's really cool. You we went to piano school. And then I saw that you were in Quincy. I'm like, oh my God, she's right there. And I'm like, we haven't met in person yet. And I really look forward to the day that we actually can like yes. have a coffee together or something totally. like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've kind of known each other for about a year now, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And really, I mean, I feel like one of the great conversations, like the conversations we talk about, like there's, we talk about a lot of different topics, but like creativity and parenting and like the overlap of right. it and like the interplay of those two things has been so much a part of what we've talked about.
1: Totally, totally.
0: One thing I wanted to start the conversation off with is what do you see, you know, you you have started a piano school, you were a piano teacher before you started the piano school. right? So you've observed, I mean, you've worked with a lot of children, I mean, you teach adults too, but you've worked with a lot of children and you have seen parents' impact on the child's creativity and development and interest in music. Can you share a little bit about like kind of what you've observed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll try to make it as short as I can. I, (laughs) I can turn it into a few hours, I think. But I've come to appreciate over the years that the parents' relationship with their kids is pretty much the make it or break it, whether kids will succeed in music lessons. It's, you know, the parents are the ones who, find a good teacher, you know, make, make the payments uh, for the lessons, make sure their kids are on time, make sure they practice. And ultimately, it comes down to, I found whether parents really, really value this and want their kids to play, you know, for the long haul, or if they're just kind of seeing it as sort of a temporary Just sort of an extracurricular activity that's just kind of gonna sort of come and go but almost by definition a child can't succeed with music if a parent is not dedicated to that otherwise you know like a a nine-year-old can't you know drive themselves uh to a to a lesson and um and all that kind of thing but um it's been interesting though seeing the dynamic and sort of our modern culture i think we we live in a time there's been no harder time to like learn a, piano, <laughs> learn a musical instrument because of all the demands on families, all the demands that are on kids, everything's just moving faster and faster and faster. So where I've found that music lies kind of in a unique place in kids' activities is that when you think about the other things that they participate in, there's either a really tough accountability system, so that's like school, where you know they they have to do this activity yeah they're building maybe building some skills along the way building some study skills learning some things but you know if, if you hold a gun to somebody's head you'll get them to do anything that's probably not the best analogy but um you know there, there's a pretty severe accountability system so kids don't have a choice with that and then most of kids other extracurriculars is a huge social component especially when it comes to sports so If a child, you know, stops the soccer team or, you know, doesn't do the school team, there's like a big social stigma there. So where music kind of sits in its own place where the parent devotion is just so critical is that it's in its own little space of it's not as social as there are other activities, most practicing happens alone at home. And we don't do grades. We don't do, you know, we don't grade the lessons. This isn't gonna appear on their transcript. So it's, it's literally a test of a student's and a family's ability to build a skill that's not gonna be graded and that nobody's gonna know about if they quit. So I think it's a, a real test of that. Um, I, I could probably go on, but I'll, uh, I'll stop there. <laughs>
0: I hadn't ever really thought of it like that, and it really does kind of fit into this special little spot in kind of the the plethora of voices out there for a child to participate in. When you are talking about, you know, the parents' commitment, I mean, I don't have experience with this, and but like as a the as a teacher in your and in, 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 in your observations, like what happens if a child really doesn't want to play does should the parent continue because like there's all these like great stories about whoever is a famous musician and their parents like told them they should play and they played for however long and whatever but like, is that really the route to go or how do you best cultivate a love for the arts which is what your whole
1: objective is it's a really really great question i think at the heart of it is figuring out you know if a if a child wants to stop lessons figuring out why they want to stop and a lot of that comes down to how we teach. Because if you think of, if you think of a child's skill set as being sort of like a circle, you wanna challenge them like just at the edge of that or just a little on the outside of that. And that's our challenge as teachers, good teachers to figure out that sweet spot of like just the right amount of challenge where it's um, manageable and exciting for kids, but it's not overwhelming. If you go too far outside that circle, then it's going to be frustrating and kids aren't going to want to keep going it kind of ceases to be music at that point and it's just this puzzle to be solved but if you're too far inside the circle then it gets boring because they because it's you know it's easy for the child so usually if a student you know is not wanting to continue i want to dig deeper into figuring out the 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 why behind that is it is it the materials too hard or is it just a matter of the of the culture what i'll typically encourage parents to do is to dig deeper into the school schedule because um most often i would say a good like 80 percent of the time when students want to stop it's because they're flooded with so many other demands on their time so they have their school they have their homework they have sports like all of that's pretty much a non-negotiable and when, stu- when students feel sort of overwhelmed with this, the idea of sitting down for 30 minutes and having like a totally focused, um, clear practice, uh, pr- a productive practice session, it's really hard for kids. And as parents, it's hard for us to relate to that because being a kid now is totally different than it was 20 years ago. So I'll, I'll typically, you know, recommend to parents to look at the schedule, you know, let's make sure that everything's like within you know, the child's skill set, adjust things there, see if things can be adjusted with the schedule. And then this is where I find that the the dedication and willingness of the parents to play ball really is the, the make it or break it, um, because it comes down to whether a parent is willing to do that, to help, you know, be their child's accountability partner, make sure they're setting the practice. And then if we have everything in the right place, if, you know, it's the right amount of skill, the kid's enjoying the music, their schedule is is intact, then usually you know it, it's not usually it's not a problem to begin with but if it reaches that point there's usually some some writing the ship still um i often tell parents when i was a kid i didn't want to practice it was the same thing i would get home from school i would you know have a ton of homework projects wasn't a sports kid but i had plenty of other stuff on my plate and there were lots of times that i just didn't want to practice but it was just a, a rule of the household that when i got home from school it was straight to the piano our practice, no ifs, ands, or buts. So if I talk back, if I didn't do it, there were consequences associated with that. I feel like not these days that would be considered kind of harsh um, from a parenting perspective. But then if that weren't there, I probably would have quit early on. So I'm I'm very thankful for that. So that's that's usually a story that I bring up with parents. It's extremely rare this happens, but the only time that I'll actually you know suggest maybe a break is in order is if for whatever reason it's becoming so stressful that there are like fights and tears at home. And it's literally like just becoming a stressful uh, pain point for families. Again, it's so rare that that happens, but that's really the only circumstance that I would suggest sort of like taking a break and coming back to it later.
0: I mean, it is a really tough balance, right? To Because as a parent, you can see the, I mean, this can be applied in a million different ways, but as a parent, you can see the future, you can see the bigger picture of it. Whereas a child is like, in this moment, I have no desire to sit at this piano right now. Yes. When you um, said earlier, you know, to, you talked about like a good teacher. How do you find a good teacher? Like how does, I mean, we've talked about this one-on-one personally before. Like what, how would you define a good teacher? What are questions you would ask to make sure that the instructor that you're hiring is going to meld with your child and also has like a philosophy? I think that's probably another... Uh, been a around there too.
1: Yeah, that's a really really excellent question cuz you know so many parents just sort of pick, you know, whatever option is the most convenient or whatever is at the sort of price point they have in mind for, you know, what piano lessons should cost and then just kind of hope for the best. And the challenge and the other challenge in this field is that there's really no, there's no licensing requirement to to teach music, like anybody can put an ad in the newspaper and say $10 an hour for lessons without a degree, without a license, and that is 100% legal, which is, which makes it harder for the, you know, for the better teachers who are, you know, at a more premium price point. But to find a good teacher, I think you already hit on a, a lot of it is just asking the teacher what what is your philosophy on teaching? I think that question alone separates the people who are just at, fresh out of school trying to make some money on the side and the people who have like really dug deep into this to think about like what the the bigger picture is um, for for their kids, for your kids, because presumably when people, you know, Take, sign their kids up for lessons. It's in the hope that they'll play this for the long term. So asking the teacher, you know, what their philosophy is, what their approach is to teaching. This is another big one because really the the publishing industry has made millions, if not billions, of dollars in you know creating method books to sort of release the teacher from any sort of thought <laughs> or critical thinking. So, you know, even an inexperienced teacher can just take, you know, the, the first level of a method book and say, okay, here, play this first piece. Okay, great, let's turn the page, let's go to the next one. Really without any bigger picture of, okay, how do children's brains work? How do they learn? You know, what do they do if they're having trouble with this, you know, what, what is the, the learning model that we're going after here? So I think asking a teacher what their approach is So that you know their kids will learn this for the long term and understand it and then making sure that the teacher explains that in such a way that you the parent understand that that i think that's a real key thing because if a teacher comes back with all kinds of high level abstract stuff and you as a parent don't understand that then that's just not going to work because the the the, it's really i think of it as a triangle so you have the parent the teacher and the student and all three really need to be, you know, working together close to, to make this happen. And then finally, I think, you know, asking the question of what additional opportunities do you offer your students is a is a big one. So the sort of the sort of traditional lesson model is you go to your one-on-one lesson and then you go home and practice by yourself. And then the next week you go to your one-on-one lesson and you go home and practice by yourself. And I think this is a big reason why a lot of kids quit because in the context of kids other activities music lessons seem like a relatively isolating and lonely experience if they don't have some other opportunities so. You know, asking if there are recitals, if there are workshops, if there's any opportunity for them to meet other kids is a big one. And that's the one that that I think is a bit more rare. It's pretty typical for a lot of schools and studios to do maybe like one big end of the year recital or maybe like a holiday recital on end of the year recital. So at South Shore Piano School, we really wanted to go the polar opposite swing. So we do two recitals every month, which I think has been a real, um, you know, I want to say game changer because you know, we've, we've done it for a while. It's not like a totally new thing, but seeing the students who participate in this regularly, they get to know other families. They feel like they're part of a community uh, and not just kind of showing up to this place to take lessons. And there's, we've definitely seen a big correlation between the students who participate in these things on the regular, making it more of a significant experience. And then the students who, for whatever reason, just don't, they're the, they're the ones that are more likely going to you know, take a break or stop when things get busy.
0: You know, I was going to just segue into asking your, about the philosophy of your school, but I first want to actually dive into this two recitals a month because yeah. when I think of a recital, I, I, my heart almost kind of tightens up, right? When, since you've introduced kind of these two recitals a month, like not even a year or, or half of the year, like, but a month, how does that change the idea of performance?
1: Again, it comes back to like our perception versus kids' perception. Because to us, that idea of a recital, and I've thought about maybe changing it just so it doesn't sound as intimidating. It it really hasn't been a huge issue though. But for us adults, it's like, oh, oh, this is going to be like this stressful thing. But for four, five, six, seven-year-olds, it's just sharing their stuff and having fun and being the star of the show. They don't have any sort of, uh, they don't have the same sort of inhibitions that we adults do as you know basic so i'm always encouraging parents the the younger you can get kids in the more performing is just going to be part of their lives
0: i really love that because if you think about like sports they perform every week and right. sometimes multiple times a week as you get older so why should it be any different except i always think like recitals for even like the organizational standpoint it just would be so much to pull together, but if you have a system and you bring it all together. I love that. I really, I really do. Do you remember like how you came up with that idea?
1: Yes. So this, this goes back to sort of my own experience taking lessons. So I I had a couple of teachers in the beginning who I would consider sort of average teachers. And then my, my first sort of significant teacher that made this, you know, this sort of started me on this long-term trajectory for life. It was at a community music school who did this same thing. It did not not two recitals a month, but it was one, it was one recital every month. And I played for every single one of them. So that that really you know went a long way in helping me, you know, meet other kids who are also doing piano, helping me, you know, work on my performing skills, performing in public. And especially like years later as I've, you know, I've worked in other organizations. Uh, I've worked in organizations that do just the one recital at the end. I've worked in uh, another organization that did also did one recital a month, and I just found it was it was almost without exception the students who stopped were the ones who didn't perform. Where it was just sort of like a, lo- a, a lonesome experience, or if it, or it was just um, you know a pay per service kind of a thing. Uh, the school that I worked with that only did the one recital at the end of the month, I, or at the end of the year, I just remember thinking like this, it's going to be like another year before, <laughs> before any of these kids get to perform again. It just seems like so far in between. So we we actually did one recital a month when we first opened, but then when the pandemic began, this was uh, March 2020 all you know most of a lot of my colleagues were sort of in like survival mode like let's you know figure out what we need to do to survive Um, it was kind of like dark skies kind of a thing and we actually had a recital scheduled for the the very next weekend when the lockdown started and we decided when that happened that we were going to go the polar opposite direction and like lean hard into making this online thing a really exceptional, an exceptional, remarkable experience. So, uh, the, when the lockdown happened, I sent in the the announcement to everybody that recital this weekend's canceled, but we're doing a virtual recital next weekend. So, get your videos ready and send them here. Oh yeah, and we're gonna do it every two weeks. Um, and that really got the excitement up. I think we were actually the first community music school in the whole country to do a virtual recital. It was on YouTube, and part of it was you know of course we wanted to survive and we wanted to you know keep as many students as we can and we did lose some uh, it was definitely a major like sort of litmus test for families dedication and how much they were willing to like stick with this when we had to go completely online but we really wanted to take it as an opportunity to live by example cuz we're always teaching our students how to persevere and think creatively um, you know, to, to come out on the other end stronger. So it was really an opportunity for us to live by example with that through, you know, the events of our organization. Uh, and I think it definitely made a big difference. So we, we were doing YouTube, uh, virtual recitals, and then we switched over to zoom and we really felt like our, our population was growing as well. So that also sort of, um, reinforce this idea that we really need to have two every month just because, you know, if we have 50 on one that's gonna be like a three hour (laughs) recital, which, uh, you know, even uh, with the best performances that's a lot to sit through. so that's kind of led up to now. So now that we're, you know, now that we're back in person, we're, we're keeping the two recital a month groove because it's, it's really been such a significant opportunity uh, for students and their families. We're doing one live one and one Zoom recital every month because we, we still have a fair number of families that are online. We want to make sure they have the opportunity as well. But it's also really cool for their families because, you know, if we have, we have some students with family in India or Germany or wherever, and they can tune in for, you know, their kids recitals, which is, uh, has been really, really cool.
0: I really love that I think it's thanks <laughs> just kind of throws it all like upside down right and right. um, then like kind of makes you think like why are the other things normal
1: right I think
0: that folks kind of have an idea but like would you be able to like if I were if I was interviewing you as a teacher oh, and I said you know can you share with me your philosophy your school's philosophy and your philosophy as a teacher could can you share what your answer would be
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're all about teaching kids the skills so that they can play music for life. So we don't, you know, we don't teach. I mean, yes, we teach songs and pieces and stuff like that, but it's all with a a longer trajectory. And we make sure that you as the parent are, you know, informed of like what we're doing with your kids. So you know that there is a path from here to You know, when Sally is in her 30s and having a dark time, she can just sit at the piano and pull out a piece of music she loves and just be able to play because we taught the skills uh, for her to be able to do that, to develop her ear, to move to rhythm, to read music, all of it. And when we're teaching students, we're really teaching using research-backed, you know, methodologies of teaching and also very organic forms of teaching, especially with with the younger kids, like age three, four, five, six. We we use really two two styles of teaching. One is Suzuki, which uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with, or they've at least heard it. Maybe don't know exactly what it is. And then another that uh, we dabble in is called music learning theory. They're 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 both almost identical with some subtle differences. But it's essentially you know taking students who've never played before and using the language learning model. So if you think about like when your kids are born, they observe their parents. You know, speaking there's that magical day when they say their first word and then they start copying other words that they hear eventually they start using that vocabulary to form their own. You know sentences thoughts ideas and it's really only after they're basically fluent or at least fluent enough to have conversations that we stick a book in front of them and start you know, learning how to read because at that point they're seeing the visual representation of this vocabulary they've lived with for a while so. With piano, we basically try to mirror the same model of learning, especially with the younger students, but even with some of the older students as well. Because what happens with a young child, if you put a method book in front of them, which a a relatively inexperienced teacher would do, if you take a five-year-old and say, okay, this is the staff, and there are five lines and four spaces, and here's this, uh, this note with the line through it, that's middle C. Oh, and when the notes go up, that's to the right, and when they go down, it's to the left. Okay, here's your song, let's start like that to a five-year-old, it ceases to be music. It's just this Mm. Rubik's cube puzzle to, to decode. So we're really all about meeting students where they are in their development and making sure we teach them in the most developmentally appropriate way possible. So they're basically learning the language and developing those skills so that over time, they'll have this. We, our, our best hope for our students is, is that they're going to play for the rest of their lives. Not that they're just going to play until like eighth grade and then never touch it again or even graduate till high school and then just forget about it. We want to equip them with the skills so that in the best times in the worst times, they can just sit at their keyboard, their piano, pick up a piece of music they want to learn and be able to learn it.
0: So you're a parent right now right. as well as a teacher and you're kind of steeped in this world of creativity. I was curious to know like approach creativity now as an adult, personally, because there's, there's this whole work component of it. And I feel like that that there's an outlet there. But like, personally, do you have a creative practice?
1: I've recently dabbled into other areas, aside, you know, outside of music, but all as it sort of relates to, to my my business and my life. I've definitely become a huge fan of writing every day. I never considered myself a, a writer before. But um, I started uh, while we were in our seminar together. We uh, I started a, a daily blogging practice every single day, just a short blob, uh, blob, um, <laughs> a short blog. Sometimes it feels like a blob. So <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> just, a, just a short uh, blog post. I think we have you know maybe uh, eleven dedicated readers, which that's all <laughs> that's all that matters. You know, just sort of with ideas on life and creativity and stuff like that. And I think what that's helped me with a lot is in appreciating this idea that when you just do the practice, when you just do the work, whatever that may be, it's not only helpful for the audience, whoever is reading it, that it connects with, but it also helps you sort of inform your own ideas about life and... Um, you know, how you see the world and things like that. So I've really found, you know, in these past, I think I'm on post like 286 or something like that since I I started. But just that sort of daily reflection and writing has really helped sort of inform my ideas about the world uh, as far as how, you know, creativity works and how important it is to think outside the box and things like that. So I might, you know, as part of my my work. I might just spend like 15 minutes thinking like okay let me list as many crazy ideas as I possibly can for you know South Shore Piano School for like you know events or you know to, to reach more students or to, you know, or for an interesting YouTube video things like that so that's one thing I've also done a lot of video stuff for the YouTube channel been on a little bit of a hiatus in the last few months but uh, if you check out the YouTube channel there's everything from the practical and useful to the borderline crazy Uh, videos, uh, especially during the pandemic. That was one of my, uh, during summer of 2020, that was one of my big projects. I I challenged myself to do a video a day for 30 days, which was hard, but it definitely pushed me as far as the the creativity elements go. And again, that really informs me and I feel like it makes me a better teacher and a better director because I've experienced this growth through a, a religious practice every day. In other areas so that so I'm always telling students all the time now, you know, it doesn't matter, like whether it's piano or your fitness or your health or your relationships, whatever, you have to do the thing every day, even when you don't feel like it. And then you're going to see your your skills grow. Uh, So I really think having those practices, those sort of non music practice, even though it all sort of, you know, ties back into my work. I think it's really helped me appreciate all the more how much, you know, how important it is to maintain that, uh, that level of dedication every day, even if it's just for five minutes.
0: I think it's what's really interesting is that you're, you're creating these things that are out there, they're public. But the gain you've actually received from it, from what you're sharing is mostly internal. Like, the fact that you have, been blogging daily or doing these various videos some of which are definitely borderline pushing the envelope And <laughs> what's funny and what's serious um but but it is it's it's it feels like what you're saying is that they're like these recitals right that you put that you're, these children are sitting and they're publicly putting out there but like I, and it's hard to say with children, right? Like you can't get into their heads, right. um, and they like couldn't verbalize it fully. But like, there must be this other like internal component. Like the regular practice of a recital would very much be the equivalent of like putting out a, like a daily blog post or something like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And like I was saying before, we you know the students who participate regularly. You know, we have some students who will do it like every month or every other month you know, as soon as they have something even, you know, we try to get, you know, their music as polished as, as we can. But, you know, if, if we have to choose between having them perform something that's like almost there, like borderline there and like waiting until the next month when they've like had it learned and they're just kind of sick of it, we'll just encourage them to just just do it and just have that practice of getting in front of an audience. And it, it, it makes it carry more meaning. I, I think it's, it comes down to whether students keep music, t- you know, to themselves. You know, we often hear students or parents say, well, you know, he doesn't want to do recitals. He just wants to play for himself. Inevitably, those are the students who end up stopping after a year Mm -hmm. or two. Compared to the ones who share it, it carries more meaning for their families. It It carries more meaning for them having shared it. And it really, you know, it helps your self esteem as well, being able to, you know, do this thing in front of an audience of, you know, 50 strangers that, you know, full grown adults struggle with.
0: There's this powerful component of like art and performing and music being like a community practice. And and you shared a little bit about that with me. Can you expand on that um, and share with the audience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So with the recitals, it's interesting because when you go to a, a concert like at Symphony Hall or something like that, it's this astounding music, you know, world class music and the audience is changed. In that moment, but then the concert's over, and I think for the perform, I don't know if I don't know if performers necessarily see it like this. This is one reason I I wanted to go more the teaching route than the performing route. But the performer, while they connect with the audience, they don't, you know, the relationship's over when the (laughs) when the concert's over, you know what I mean. And same thing, same thing for the audience. So I feel like with our recitals for the students, you know, we really keep it casual. We we try not to. You know, it's not a show up in in shorts and and uh, sneakers kind of a thing, but we do try to keep it you know casual, so it's not it's not coming off as this you know this thing that's only for you know the good kids or whatever. Uh, and we do you know really outside the box things as well. Like our we had our first live recital uh, a couple weeks ago, and in sort of honor of the last live recital we had before the lockdown, we had a joke contest in the middle of the recital, which in a typical recital setting would be considered like blasphemous, like you you tell any like, you know, conservatory, oh, yeah, I think I want to put a joke contest in the middle, shake things up, They'd, you'd be like thrown out <laughs> kind of a thing. But, you know, we're trying to reinforce the spirit of like, you know, music is about sharing, it's not about it being perfect, it's not about being the best, it's just about sharing what you've worked on with an audience, and, you know, connecting with other people. So that's why I'm always encouraging, we're, we're always encouraging, my, my colleagues and I, students to participate regularly because inevitably they start to see other students again and again and again and they feel like they know other people that are doing this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by contrast, you know, the model where, that has you know, less frequent recitals or even no recitals, I've come to appreciate more and more that like in that child's world, they're the only one they know that plays the piano. You know what I mean? And that's an extremely different experience than the one who's you know, able to participate in these opportunities.
0: I think that's just so beautiful. I, particularly the this part about like not having them dress up. Like you think, because that's part of it. Like having a recital is really serious. And, you know, anytime we had a concert for school, we would always, you know, have to wear black and white or whatever, whatever the attire called for, um, was called for at the moment. But I think breaking it down, like breaks down the, this like, general stereotypes like you're like kind of anti-stereotype right now like what what you're sharing with me it goes against what the model of music that and I didn't do private lessons growing up I, I had school um I was in the school orchestra and the chorus and we would always get dressed up and we would you know it was a big thing um and I think about what you're sharing about, like how you're kind of making it for everyone. And, and, that, and that makes like like having a child, like let's just say like who is low income or just doesn't come from like a privileged background where he can just buy a new shirt or she can buy a new dress, right, for the event and actually just making it where it's like, you're flattening that that barrier for someone to feel like they need to belong or to participate in music right and making it for everyone i think that's just a really beautiful thing
1: thank you and and, in a way i like to think of it as a as a return to where we came from because centuries ago music really was a social thing like every house had a piano in it playing you know half of the time it was for dancing it wasn't like always this sort of highbrow you know um formal occasion and even you know in say like mozart's time You know, it was it was the tradition to be able to just come in and out of the concert hall as you please. You could bring in food, you could drink, you could applaud whenever you want. Even uh, you know, Mozart was known for in his uh, you know in his keyboard concertos to actually factor in silences in the piano part to allow room for the audience to just applaud, like mid recital. Now, you know, if you go to Symphony Hall, like, if one person claps between movements of a concerto that, like, just doesn't understand, you know, the the, the tradition, they're immediately sort of, like, scoffed at, like, you know, you don't belong here, like, what's wrong with you? Um, and I just think that's sad, because that kind of turns people off to this experience of, of music, when it's sort of this, like, oh, I have to make sure my phone is off, or I'm going to get in big trouble, I can't, you know, I'm going to save my cough for in-between pieces. Um, so... It really wasn't until, um, I'm blanking on when exactly this happened, it was during Mozart's time, but it was really the sort of upper, the upper class that decided, that that basically funded this whole operation, that decided like, okay, this music's going to be this more complex highbrow thing now, we're going to have all these things, like no clapping and blah, 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 that's, you know, unfortunately kind of held through to today. So, um, you know, while we still, you know, it's not like you know, dress down day or anything like that. Like, there's still like a minimum. And, you know, we, you know, we, we still observe like, you know, some of those practices, of course, you know, out of respect for, you know, the person's playing, but we're trying to make it more of a community experience, more of a social experience, more of a sharing experience, rather than this, you know, uh, I don't want to say stiff, but that's the only word that's coming to mind. This sort of like, you know, rigid, you know, this is how everything's going to go and it's going to be perfect. And if anything goes wrong, then it's going to be awful. We're trying to do the polar opposite of that.
0: Yeah, I love that. We took the marketing seminar together, um, which was founded by Seth Godin, and he talks about status a lot. And this brings me right back to that, where music was used as a tool to set status in a community or in a society. Right. And it has definitely um, perpetuated throughout the years.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: There was, you were talking about how you write daily. Um, would you call yourself a writer?
1: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel like it, but uh, I mean, I write every day, so I suppose by definition, I'm a I'm a writer. Then, um, it's one of those things that didn't feel intuitive at first. There was definitely some, uh, you know, needing to push through some some mental resistance in, in those first few. But, um, but yeah, no, I just, I, I write every day. I write for myself, you know, I do some, you know, like reflective writing every day. And, um, you know, I guess if, uh, if somebody does plumbing that makes them a plumber. So I do writing. So I guess I would be considered a writer, even though it doesn't feel like it in sort of the traditional term, but yeah.
0: Yeah. And then like, what about your students? Like, do they call themselves musicians or do you call them musicians? Like where in their, um, experience within your program or even just in general i don't know much about like i don't know i, I think i call myself a viola player i don't know when that happened um mm-hmm. when it turns transition from i play viola to i am a viola player i think that there's like those two a different way of centering that But like do you call your students musicians are they right like like that from the get-go or how do you um how do you address them
1: yeah, that's a really great question. I th- you know, as often as we can, we try to encourage them to think of themselves as musicians. I think there's a lot to sort of fight through in that I think society thinks that you need to attain a certain level of advanced before you're officially considered a musician. But, you know, kind of like we're talking about with the writing thing, they're playing music from day, you know, one. So sort of by definition, they're a musician if they're like creating music off the page. Or from their memory or whatever, and you know we have a lot of students who uh, actually this this latest live recital we had we had we had some students who did their first recital after only like five lessons, mm-hmm. so they're performing music for an audience, therefore they are a musician. Now getting their parents or the kids themselves to see that you know, again, perceptions are, are a strong thing, but we're always trying to, you know, encourage them to consider themselves musicians. It's not about, you know, reaching the super high level and then you're, you know, anointed officially as a musician, but well, you're playing music, so you're a musician.
0: Mm. I love that you're, like, I'm just so happy that we met because I want like everyone to go, like, because we are in the same area, I want everyone to go to your piano school because <laughs> the, the- Thank you. The, of course, the um, turning music. I mean, arts is such a important component to our culture, to our individual individuality, and to be able to cultivate that within kids and to shift the narrative. Like at a young age, it, it's just. I think that those are all. So like the wonderful things that you're doing.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Now, um, one thing I like to like, kind of close up all of my interviews with is to ask this one question. Um, and so on. I think a lot about truths and like things that we know to be completely true deep down in our bones. And I wanted to know, I wanted to ask you if you could share a truth of yours with the audience.
1: Oh, wow. What a profound question. (laughs) I'll just share the first thing that that comes to mind is my truth and my philosophy and all of this that has led to, you know, starting my business is that anyone can learn to play music. There is no, there is no talent. You know, there may be some getting it quicker than others, but there is no, some people have it. some people don't, literally Anybody can learn how to play music. Everybody has the right to learn music. Everybody should have the opportunity to learn music. And it's really just a matter of finding that that teacher who 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 gets it, who's passionate about it, who's dedicated to it, and uh, everyone deserves that. But it doesn't matter whether you're you know, you see yourself as talented, not talented, if you have a keyboard, if you have a grand piano, you know, if you're wealthy, if you're lower income, whatever, literally anybody on this planet, can learn music. It doesn't matter what age. We just had an adult student start who's 86. She's doing awesome. Um, anybody can do this. So that's that's been sort of my my north star. That's uh, led me to start South Shore Piano School to really try to to foster this in as many human beings as possible.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your truths and and your philosophy and your approach. Because I I think that even if it's you know. Someone who can't actually attend your school, they have received a different message than other schools are offering.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a fun conversation, and uh, you know, congratulations on your on your podcast. You're uh, you you ask some really uh, great questions that dig deep into the heart of this. So thank you for those.
0: You're welcome. Now, if folks want to find you. Where can they um, learn more about your school and what you're doing?
1: Sure. So the best place would probably be our website. It's southshorepianoschool.com. You can read more about you know myself, all of the other teachers that are working with us. We do you know a free trial lesson if anybody wants to come on in and just give us a try, no obligation. Uh, and we're also on all of the you know major social media channels. Our you know we have our YouTube channel. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, probably more Facebook and Instagram than Twitter, uh, but the handle on all those is SS Piano School.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. I wish you all the best as you turn this world of music upside down.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You too.
0: Thank you for tuning in today. A great big thank you to Medfield TV for their support and editing this episode. Living an inspired life is a worthy endeavor. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Be sure to subscribe in your preferred podcast player for future real conversations. And if any part of this episode made you think of a friend, let them know that they aren't alone in their journey and share all the things with them. If you'd like to stay in touch, hop on over to lisaforreal.com and sign up for my daily blogs or find me on Instagram at Reclaiming Motherhood. See you next time.